Genesis together, shall we? Genesis 45. Let's read a couple verses and then we'll pray together as we continue this series, Foundations, Book of Genesis. And I hope we'll all open our hearts to the Word of God tonight. Verse 1 says this, Then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him. And he cried, Cause every man to go out from me. There stood no man with him while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. And he wept aloud. And the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard. Father, please help us tonight, as we noted. A lot of folks here are tired. They've worked hard. And a lot of moms in this room have labored hard today. And I just ask you'll help all of us here um, to, to be alert, to open our hearts and not be distracted from the amazing Word of God we hold in our hands. We thank you for this privilege, this opportunity, this joy. May lives be changed a little bit because we looked into this mirror of your Word in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, you may have noticed the past couple weeks how often that we've referred to this man Joseph as an Old Testament type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Joseph was a son, a beloved son of the Father, He was rejected by his brothers. He left his exalted place to become falsely accused and left for dead. God showed favor to Joseph, brought him up out of that prison, and then exalted him not only to the right hand of all that power, but with really ultimate authority, which he used that authority to save his own people from certain death. Joseph was sold for silver. He was stripped of his robe. He was condemned with two other criminals, one of which received life and the other one received death. And we could go on and on. You'll hear some more later tonight. But I got to say the greatest and the most important and powerful likeness to Christ in all of Joseph's life and career is what we've come to tonight. I've been brought to tears several times the past couple weeks and couple times even to shouts of joy, as I've revisited this incredible scene in the Bible. Because what you're about to see, beloved, and nothing new to all of us here, but what you're about to see again is mercy. True mercy and true grace. Now I say true mercy and true grace precisely because the mercy, modern notions today of of grace and of mercy are, are very wrong and extremely weak. You know, any true appreciation of Christ, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, has to begin with an appreciation and a true understanding of who he is. That is, who he truly is. For example, the Roman Catholic Church presents Jesus typically in one of two ways. A, he is either a helpless babe in the arms of Mary, overshadowed by a woman, Or B, he is a man nailed to and still hanging upon a cross. That's a crucifix. In fact, as we've seen numerous times in missionary presentations, and the Vieos can tell you for sure, sometimes they put those two depictions together where they actually have a statue of Mary holding the corpse of Jesus in her arms. Now, of course, the problem with those depictions is that neither of them is where Jesus is 
nor where the Bible leaves the Lord Jesus Christ. They are both completely inadequate representations because our Lord is right now, at this moment, the exalted Son of the living God. Right now, He is the Lord of glory. So as we look at this man, Joseph, again, a picture more than anyone else in the Old Testament, a picture of Jesus, we take note that Joseph's revelation of himself to his brothers was this sudden one. He was revealed, and what it revealed to them in that very moment, again, was his glory. Think of this. One moment, their eyes were holden, as the New Testament says. They could not or should not know who he was. And the next moment, they see him for who he is. Literally, it's just like that. In five seconds, he goes from being Zaphonoth Panea, a ruler in Egypt, to being Joseph their own now exalted brother. And one day, if you think about it, that is exactly how the Jews will see Christ, just as Jesus reveals in Matthew chapter 24. Which brings us again to verse 3. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph. Now you got the scene in your mind, right? They're all standing around. He said, everybody leave except for his brothers. They don't know who he is. They, we talked about this last week, why they don't know who he is. And he's standing there, he's the ruler of Egypt as far as they're concerned, and he says, I am Joseph. Doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. Now, this is one of the most common scenes in all of the land of ancient Egypt. You say, Pastor, what are you talking about? You're sitting there and you're thinking, how in the world is this common or typical? What's common about it as a scene in the land of Egypt? I would think, Pastor, that Joseph's revealing himself to his long-lost brothers is the rarest thing in the Bible, much less the land of Egypt. And yes, undoubtedly, that part is true, as we'll see in a moment. It's an amazing story how the ones who wanted to kill him and the ones who did sell him into slavery, their very own flesh and blood, their brother, they're now standing before him as he wields in the scepter, his scepter the power of the entire world. That part is rare. What wasn't rare in this scene, however, is what we just read in the last clause of verse 3 when it says that they were troubled at his presence. You see, folks, in the days of the ancient Egyptians and all of those empires, anybody who ruled in the realm of, for example, Pharaoh, anybody who had the kind of position and authority that Joseph enjoyed, they essentially ruled with absolute, absolute power. They themselves were the beginning and the ending of all of the law, so that execution or, or torture or exile or slavery any whim that the ancient rulers acted upon were done so with absolute, complete impunity. So, it was typical. In fact, it was usual. It was commonly noted that when people of the land came into the presence of an Egyptian ruler, they trembled. They feared for their lives. 
Or as verse 3 says, they were troubled at his what? Presence. Now, of course, we know that Joseph's brothers have twice the reason for being troubled in this scene. Not only because Joseph holds their lives in his hand, but at one time they held his life in their hands and they chose to destroy his life. So again, this fearfulness in the presence of power was an expected thing in the land of Egypt. But you're going to notice in a few moments the most unexpected and the most uncommon and the most unusual thing is about to occur to the people in that room. And I mean the most unusual thing in all of human experience. And that's because in that same situation where you would have a group of schemers, traitors, and conspirators who are going to answer to the very one they had plotted against. In that context, in the land of Pharaoh, the very next sentence out of that ruler's mouth would be clear and it would be final away with them. And it would mean death and torture. Off with their heads, to the brickyards, into the prison. So you see, folks, there's just no question that these men troubled in Joseph's presence have every reason to be troubled indeed. And yet, with all of world history literally hanging in the balance, and with this entire plan of God's redemption that we've been studying for all of these months, floating on this very scene, the man who holds the power of the world in his hand does the one thing, the one thing that is the most uncommon and most unheard of. Because instead of turning away, and instead of turning them away, and instead of putting them into bondage, and instead of yelling, get out of my presence, get out of my sight, as far away as you can, Joseph does something else. Verse 4, And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near. Now wait a minute. Come near to me? Would any despot, any ruler, Cyrus, who faces his traitors, his conspirators, his murderers, come near to me? And the Bible says they came near. And yes, beloved, hear me, you are going to see on display the single greatest demonstration of forgiveness in all of the Bible, except for the Lord Jesus himself as he hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them. I don't know if there's a single virtue. Let me say this before we get into the text again. I just don't know if there's another virtue in all of the Bible that blesses more people in a more profound way for a much longer period of time than does the grace of forgiveness and act of mercy. If you were to go to your Bible software, I have two that I use a lot, and if you were to do that and you were to type in the word forgive in a word search, you would find immediately that the very first time in all of the Word of God that the word forgive is used in the Bible is right here in the story of Joseph when we come to chapter 50. So that Joseph, you see, is the absolute paradigm. This is a foundational book, right? There's the foundation of all forgiveness. He is the paradigm for why and how forgiveness offers the single greatest blessing to others in this world. It is not an accident that the model prayer, it's sometimes called the Lord's Prayer, it's our prayer. Lord, teach us how to pray. And Jesus said, okay, here's how you pray. 
that we are admonished by Jesus not just to pray for daily bread, but also for daily grace to forgive those who've trespassed against us. Father, forgive us our sins. And then he says, as we forgive those who've sinned against us. Why? Why did Jesus say that should be part of our daily prayer? The constant need to to forgive, for grace to forgive. I can tell you, the Lord Jesus knows how mean and how annoying you are. And I am, and all people are. It's hard to believe, but I know of two churches, just a one little teeny example. I had like five I wanted to give, but because of time, I won't. I know of two churches in North Florida that are on the same property. Picture the square right here. I've been there. Same property. There's a road that divides the property right down the middle. And then there's a fence. And on the north and the south side, to the south is Grace Baptist Church, and the north is Faith Baptist Church. The sad thing is, they used to be one church that owned that one piece of property. And they had a church split. And you know what they had a church split over? You know what started the entire thing? It was a potluck supper. And specifically the food at the potluck supper. I remember the story of a kindergarten boy and a little teacher had a kindergartner, had unusual show and tell, and she told the kids to bring something to class that represented their religion. So the next day, the little boy says, my name is Seth, I'm Jewish, and this is a star of David. The little girl said, my name is Mary, I'm Catholic, and this is a rosary. Third child got before the class said, my name is Tommy, I'm a Baptist, and this is a casserole. Amen. <laughs> you know, a church split, anger and bitterness, because somebody was wronged at a church supper, and nobody would forgive. On both sides, nobody would forgive. I'm so thankful tonight for Genesis 45, where you have a situation that God raises up. Now ponder this, because, you know, forgiveness depends on the depth of the offense. And you have here what is arguably the worst example of man's injustice in all of Scripture. Because what the sons of Jacob did to their own brother Joseph was as unfair It was as diabolical and damaging as anything a man could ever do to his fellow man, much less his own brothers. And, of course, that means that these boys have made it extremely difficult for the person they've wronged to find any forgiveness in his heart towards them. I just want to remind you that Joseph spent 13 years of his life either in slavery or prison. And for all of those 13 years... Those years that were lost forever, you can't get them back. He was lied about. I think that being lied about and character assassination by someone is one of the worst injustices of all. He was lied about. He was framed. It all, he was mistreated. And it all began for the envy of his own brother's hearts. Oh no, they sold him into slavery. But you remember they really wanted to kill him. And he knows it. And now with, with all of the power of the entire world in his hands, the normal and typical thing to do is to engage in some math. You say math? Yes. 
You do this. In order to feel vindicated, what typically happens is the wrong person says, two years as a slave, ten years in a prison, times ten evil brothers, it's time to settle some scores. And here's the thing. Nobody in Egypt would have blamed him. Everybody would have expected him to do exactly that. Nobody there. But let me ask a question. And I think you know the answer to this. Had Joseph chosen the path of man, the way of flesh, what most of us in our flesh would have done, and what the whole world does, had he chosen that, to whom then would that choice have been a blessing? Who would have been blessed by that? What blessing would his life provide then or even now, tonight, on a Wednesday night? If instead of saying to his brethren, come near to me, he chose to say, get out of my house. Get out of my presence. To the gallows. Go to the jails. What kind of joy and goodness would that choice have provided the world? The best way, probably the best way to answer that question is to take note of the fact that this man Joseph did forgive. And because he forgave, the world has really never been the same. Next week's study, I hope you're here, is going to get into the details of why we say that. But for now, notice again our text in verse 3. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph. By the way, you know what that reminds me of? It reminds me so much of a fiery Jew in the first century uh, going about persecuting these new converts in Acts chapter 8. He was convinced, Paul, Saul, that they were a cult. They had to be stamped out. But what happened? On the road to Damascus, the very one he sought to persecute uh, appeared to him in his glory, blinded him with light, and he said three words, I am Jesus. You know what that is? Revelation. I am Joseph. Oh. I am Jesus. So that it, just like that, one moment... Saul's a sinner, the next moment he becomes a saint. One moment Saul is a blasphemer, and the next moment he comes, becomes a believer. Verse, thir- verse 3 again. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph. Doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. In other words, they couldn't even speak. Speechless and troubled, just like Saul. After all, how did this Egyptian prince even know the name Joseph? How did he know about that? And after all, as far as they know, he's deceased. It gets better, verse 4. And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near, and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. Now, folks, please note this. That last line of verse 4 is critical. I mentioned the world's idea or some church's idea of mercy and grace. This is real mercy and grace you're going to see at work. That last line is critical. You know, the book of James reminds us that wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable. Everybody who has the wisdom from below loves in stories like these to just jump right into verse 5. But you can't jump right into verse 5. Look at it. Now, therefore, he says, be not grieved. This is mercy. 
nor angry with yourselves. Don't even have guilt, he says. That ye sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. Wow, folks, that's mercy and pardon. That is grace, and yes, that is peace. But you'll notice that the first thing Joseph deals with before he gets there isn't pardon. It's guilt. The first thing he deals with is the truth. Verse 4 again, the last line. I am Joseph, your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. Why didn't he just go to verse 5? Don't be troubled. Don't feel bad about yourself. Why does he have to remind them? Because that's how grace works. Joseph is not about covering up their past and their sins, glossing over what they did, or ignoring what they did, or excusing their sin. There's no excuse. No, the fact is, for months, as we studied last week and the week before and the week before, you can see that for months Joseph has taken one step after another, all those little manipulations he did, to highlight and remind them and prick their hearts with the guilt and the conviction of what they had done. You sold. You sold me. That was the fact. And it was a fact that they now face as never before because of what Joseph has been doing in their hearts and their lives. And yet Joseph adds to that sad fact another fact. And that's the glorious one. That's the merciful. What's he say in verse 5? Look at it again. Now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither. Ye sold me here. For God did send me before you to preserve life. You did this, and God did this. You did the bad thing, the horrible thing, the wicked thing, but God made it a good thing. And folks, you realize that's what Calvary is. We sold. That's the tragedy. But God did send. That's the triumph. The cross reveals man at his worst, but it reveals God at his best. Watch what happens. Verse 6, For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in the which there shall neither be early nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Notice what he says, God sent me. God did this. You didn't do this. You get no credit for this. Verse 8, so now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Wait a minute. And how many ways is Joseph a picture of the type of Christ? Here, beloved, the rejected one is highly exalted. And from that position, he says to his brethren, verse 9, haste ye. And go up to my father and say unto him, thus saith thy son Joseph. God hath made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down unto me and tarry not. In other words, Joseph sent them back to his father, forgiven, restored, and with a message from himself. And you know, folks, that's exactly what Christ does for us. He sanctifies us. He intercedes for us. He speaks to the Father of His pardon on our behalf. And then... Joseph essentially says, you guys can now be where I am, and I will nourish and care for you. Verse 10, 
And thou shalt dwell in the land of Goshen, and thou shalt be near unto me. Thou and thy children, and thy children's children, and thy flocks, and thy herds, and all that thou hast. And there will I nourish thee. For yet there are five years of famine, lest thou and thy household, and all that thou hast come, hast come to poverty. And behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin, that it is my mouth that speaketh unto you. And by the way, the next verse, verse 13, is about a good illustration of worship and witness as you'll find anywhere in the Bible. And ye shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that ye have seen. Tell the father of all my glory. Now think about that for a minute, all right? Just ponder that because this happened. What would they have said to the father? Simply this. Father, we have come to speak to you of your beloved son. First, we confess that we once hated him. We rejected him. We sold him for the price of a slave. And yet he, whom we thought as dead, is alive. Not only is he alive, Father, but he, has, he is now raised on high and given a name above all other names. He rules the nation of Lord, as Lord of all. And what can we say of his grace? He has forgiven our sins. He even said that God meant it all for good. And Father, his desire is that where he is, there we might be also. Verse 14, and he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. Remember, they have the same mother. Moreover, he kissed all his brethren and wept upon them. And after that, his brethren talked with him. I can imagine they talked and they talked and they talked. Even back in chapter 37, you may remember, we read it. It says that they hated him so much they couldn't even speak to him. Remember that? Now that's all they can do is talk and talk and talk. Do you remember on the road to Emmaus, the resurrected Christ, it says that beginning at Genesis, beginning with Moses, Jesus expounded unto these men. This is after the resurrection. They didn't recognize Jesus. He expounded unto all the things in the scriptures concerning himself. I imagine our Lord showed those two disciples wonderful truths about himself right here in the story of Joseph. As a matter of fact, there's an interesting thing. Stephen, the only other man that I know of in the Bible, perhaps Daniel, certainly Joseph, definitely Joseph. Stephen, of whom nothing is said that they ever committed some sin. He's being unjustly stoned to death. And in his defense to the Jewish council, in his marvelous sermon, he mentions a specific detail about Joseph. About Joseph, his father. I want you to notice on the screen what it says in Acts chapter 7. This is Stephen's sermon. And the patriarch to move with envy sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom. Do we have that on the screen, guys? No? Okay. I'll just read it to you. And gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt and Canaan in great affliction, and our fathers found no sustenance. 
But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. Now follow this. And the second time, now think about it, this is a sermon he's preaching. And he, he says, and the second time Joseph was made known to his brethren. Why did Stephen take pains to show that, quote, the second time Joseph revealed his glory to his brothers? Well, it's definitely a picture. Stephen knows that Israel has rejected Christ. They're going to stone him. The very leaders, the representative, Saul is there. He knows they've rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Here's how he closes that great sermon. And I'll read it to you since we don't have the verse on the screen. Verse 51. Ye stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before, or the coming of the just one, whom ye have now been the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the dispensation of angels and have not kept it. That explains why Stephen was not invited to the ministerial association luncheon. But it's also why it says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Just angry they were gnashing. It also explains Stephen's understanding of Joseph's revealing him the second time. It is a picture. Israel did indeed reject Christ in his first appearing. But Israel will receive him the second time in his glory, as Joseph showed him in his glory. And again, I imagine our Lord talking to the Emmaus disciples, beginning at Moses expounding unto them all the things in the scriptures concerning himself, truths about himself right here in Stephen's sermon from Joseph's life, some we can barely even see tonight without question. Maybe even including the next fascinating statement, chapter 45 again. Follow this carefully. And the fame thereof was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, verse 16, Joseph's brethren are come, and it pleased Pharaoh well and his servants. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, Say unto thy brethren, This do ye, laid your beasts, and go, get you into the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households, and come unto me, and I will give you the good land of Egypt, and ye shall eat the fat of the land. Now thou art commanded, This do ye, take ye wagons out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. And also regard not your stuff, for the good of all the land of Egypt is yours. And the children of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the commandment of Pharaoh and gave them provision for the way. And then it says in verse 24, look at it. So he sent his brethren away and they departed. And he said unto them, see that ye fall not out by the way. You know what? I got to preach on that one line someday. I got to tell you, that's an amazing statement by Joseph. He said, brethren, take this journey. You have our blessing. Return, but on the journey, either there or back, don't fall out on the way. It literally means don't have a falling out. Isn't that a weird thing to say? I mean, it's going to be a long journey. We get it. Tedious. You may remember on the first journey, it was Reuben who said, I told you so, I told you so. Got into that business. Verse 22, it says this, To all of them he gave each man changes of raiment 
To Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of raiment. So on this long, tiresome road, they might be tempted to squabble and be envious over who got the best robes. They argued about that before. Who got the most gifts? Even though they had just been forgiven and blessed, even though they were all recipients of God's amazing grace, still, Joseph realizes he's got a little Baptist church on his hands. Or he's got a little Jewish synagogue on his hands. And he says, look, take your journey, but don't fall out on the way. Don't get sidetracked. Don't get knocked off course. Don't don't have a falling out with each other and quit this journey. And that's what our Lord says to us. All in the epistles, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, throughout the New Testament, stop the senseless ridiculous envy and squabbling you're on an eternal journey of glory there's bigger things at stake verse 25 and they went out of the land of egypt and came to the land of canaan came to the land of canaan to jacob their father and told him saying joseph is yet alive and he is governor over all the land of egypt and Job's, Jacob's heart fainted, for he believed them not. Now, I don't know. Honestly, I, I've thought about this verse many times. I don't know if they were smart enough to say, Dad, sit down. Are you sitting down? But that's not the presentation. It says they saw him and they just told him all the, all the words of Joseph. Hey, he's alive. Remember your son, Joseph? Hey, Dad, he's alive. Because the, I, I think they just blurted it out. Be a nice thing to do to a 130-year-old man. Because it says he, his heart fainted. He's like having a heart attack. Being an old man who thought your son was dead for the past 23 years, suddenly you're told he's alive and now he's Lord of all of the world? Yeah, his heart fainted. The last line of verse 26 says, he didn't believe them in that it was just too good to be true. He couldn't believe it. You know, people believe bad news right away. Sometimes you've got to believe the good news, amen? Here's what built his faith. Verse 27, And they told him all the words of Joseph, which he said unto them. And when he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. He thought, wow, this is true. My boys don't have these kind of wagons. <laughs> and Israel said, verse 28, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now let me say this. It's pretty obvious at the end of verse 28 that Jacob's plan is to go down to Egypt, quote, and see. That's what he said. I want to go see, visit his son Joseph before he dies. Jacob knows. We studied this in depth. Jacob knows God's instructions to his father and his grandfather, Isaac and Abraham. Do not sojourn in Egypt. So maybe a visit, go down and see Joseph and die or return to Canaan and die. And even that was troubling Jacob's mind. But I want you to see something. I want you to see how God comes with that thought and reassures him. This is our God. Chapter 46, verse 1, And Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifice unto the God his father Isaac. And God spake unto Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. 
Fear not to go down into Egypt. Don't be afraid. For I will there make of thee a great nation. I will go down with thee into Egypt. And I will surely bring thee up again. And Joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes. That last statement by God is actually a promise to Jacob of a peaceful death. Putting the hand upon the eyes like this, that was an idiom. And it reassured Jacob that Joseph was going to be with him in the day that he died. Elderly people fear and resist a lot of change, understandably so, because familiar surroundings, familiar furnishings, the presence of family and loved ones and friends, all of that sort of gives you a certain peace and confidence, a little more control in those older years and even as you're dying. So you think about this for a moment. God knows that Jacob is fretting this move. He knows why he's fretting this great big change all the way down to Egypt. So you know what? To comfort him, he says, don't be afraid, Jacob. I am God, the God of thy father. Now you have to go back in your mind for a minute. Jacob and Esau and Isaac and all that we studied. He says, I will go down with thee to Egypt. And he says, I promise that Joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes. God, it's just a reminder, God cares about the very personal needs of all of his servants. It's why Peter said, casting all your cares upon him. Why? For he careth for you. You say, well, I just want to cast the big cares. All your cares. You're afraid of that big move, that change? Casting all your cares upon him, for he careth for you. God knew what Jacob was worried about. He knows what you're worried about. It's pretty amazing, and it's very telling, if you think about it, that just as God is dealing with nations, that's what this is about. Just as God is dealing with world history and redemption and 400 years of future plans, I'm going to make a great nation there in Egypt. Just as God is moving the world events in Genesis 45 and 46, he's also concerned about the fretting of a 130-year-old servant. He's concerned. And he's concerned about the guilt and the pain of 11 convicted brothers. This is how our God is. And beloved, this is how our Savior is. He knows our needs because he is not a babe in mother's arms. He's not a man still hanging on a cross. He's the exalted, omniscient son of the living God. And he can, because he's omnipresent, he can go down with thee as you sojourn in Egypt. In closing, it is significant that at 130 years, Jacob didn't just go down to see Joseph and die a year later, as I'm sure he was thinking, or even two years, or on the third or fourth year. He was there for 17 years. God gave Jacob 17 years to dry up all of those tears. Remember when Jacob wished himself to be dead when he first heard about Joseph? I wish I could just die right now. He didn't get that wish. 
Because God had something greater for him. And yes, God is always able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we ask or think. Because he wants to. And God's people said? Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. And as we continue to study this foundational book, and even tonight, this foundational example of forgiveness and mercy, true forgiveness, doesn't cover or ignore the sin, just magnifies the grace and the glory. I pray, Father, as we continue to study your plan of redemption that goes to this very night, to this very gathering of believers on a Wednesday night in in Florida, this glorious plan will come to eternal fruition. May we trust you this entire day, this entire week and month, this whole year, whatever comes our way, knowing that you are always able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ever ask or even think. We thank you and praise you for that. In Jesus' precious name, amen.